0: Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today, I want to replay an episode that we have played last year. Uh, It was a conversation with Dr. Russell Hilliard. A week ago, I had the opportunity to be part of Camp Kangaroo. For those who don't know, Camp Kangaroo is a program of accent care. It helps young children who are dealing with grief. So it's a three day grief camp that happens once a year, at least here in Illinois where children come from different hospices or different areas of Chicago, children who've lost their loved ones. I was there and it really touched me deeply just to be there for those children to hear their stories and to hear them navigate grief. Some of it was really emotional and heartbreaking to see the pain they go through, but I was also blessed by the power of Camp Kangaroo and the counselors. And how they were able to help these children even if it is only three days it is something important the information the therapy sessions the games everything was designed to help these kids progress in their grief journey progress towards healing so let us replay this episode dr russell hilliard played a big part is one of the brains behind camp kangaroo so please listen to this wonderful conversation
1: You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul.
0: I'm Saul Ebem and you're listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today, my guest is almost a legend in the field of hospice music therapy, Dr. Russell Hilliard. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. You know, I read somewhere that you were the first is it to be hired as a music therapist in the United States is that is that accurate? No,
2: uh, there're plenty of music therapists that came before me, but I believe I was the first full-time music therapist working in hospice care. Yes.
0: Wow, that's 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 major.
2: <laughs> so
0: where Just did It you- makes
2: me feel old. <laughs> where did you grow up? I grew up in Lakeland, Florida, which is just between Orlando and Tampa, Central Florida. So I uh, grew up playing double bass in the symphony, started playing, I think, in fourth grade. Um, always wanted to be an a orchestra pit performer. So down in the pit, doing musicals and operas and that kind of thing, um, <laughs> and found music therapy along the way.
0: How did uh, your passion for music uh, develop?
2: So I think growing up as a kid um, in a small community, you know, we weren't, there wasn't a lot of diversity. And so I didn't feel like I could relate always to other kids. Um, People weren't like me. I felt like an outsider. And when I discovered music, I could express myself in ways that words couldn't. Um, And then when we started playing music together, as an orchestra, I found kids who we had a commonality. So I finally formed a peer support network, if you will, through music, this common bond of music, bringing people together. Um, You know, my family grew up in a, in an era where we listened to eight track tapes. If you remember those before (laughs) tapes and records. Uh, And I remember my, my mom, you know, just really loving all kinds of music a real music lover. We had the music on more than the television in my house growing up. So it was just always around from country western and Elvis to my love of classical music, my brother's love of classic rock. You heard it all in our house.
0: (laughs) How did you then make that transition uh, to hospice music therapy?
2: Well, actually, I think the the story is a little before that. It's about, you know, how did I go from being a music performer to wanting to be a music therapist? Uh, My mom had a cerebral aneurysm, uh, which left her severely brain damaged in 1991. I was a freshman uh, in college at the University of Central Florida, and my mom was only 47 years old. And here she was severely brain damaged. She went to a hospital. For brain injury rehab, and she didn't make very much progress. You know, the the speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy was very hard for her. And I took a leave from school, and I spent most days with her, and it was a struggle. The music therapist uh, at the hospital was on maternity leave, and when she came back. Um, she saw that my mom was struggling. We were in a large rehab room. So there were a lot of patients there working with their therapist. And the music therapist came up and she said, I see your mom's having a hard time. I think I can help. And my mom was struggling with a hairbrush. The occupational therapist was trying to teach her how to brush her hair. And my mom didn't understand and was frustrated. And so the music therapist said, was there a song your mom sang to you when you were little? And I said, yeah, she used to sing, You Are My Sunshine. And so the music therapist sang, You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. And my mom stopped. Like she was hitting the occupational therapist with a brush. She stopped hitting this therapist and she looked at this woman. And my mother couldn't speak. Um, You know, she had no verbal language. She looked at this music therapist and she hummed along. Ah, 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 right. And for that first time since my mom had an aneurysm, I knew my mom was still in there. You know, I didn't know she was still in there. That music therapist reached my mom in a way that nobody else could have reached. And she did it with music. And we paired music therapy with occupational therapy and speech therapy and physical therapy. And my mother made a lot of progress. She never became functionally independent again, mm-hmm. but she. This music therapist helped my mom bring out who she was and connect with her family again, which meant everything to us.
0: It looks like the music therapist didn't only bring out your mom,
2: but also you. Yes. And she connected the two of us again. You know, we were we were not connected prior to that. So I went back to school and I was performing. Uh, we were playing like Mozart's 35th symphony, I believe. And I'm looking in the audience and, you know, the guy in the third row is asleep. He's there with his wife and she's kind of thumbing through the program. And I thought, while I love playing music, like, am I really making a difference for these people? Not like the music therapist made for my mom and my family. Mm. And I immediately switched majors in universities, transferred to Florida State University and became a music therapy major because I wanted to do what that music therapist did, was to use music to heal people, to help bring people together.
0: My God, that's, a, that's such a touching, touching story. Um, so what were your steps after... In university, what were your steps to going to hospice?
2: Yeah, I did not want to do hospice. I thought, you know, people were creepy who wanted to work with death and dying. (laughs) And why would you want to do that? Um, I volunteered every weekend at the Florida HIV AIDS hotline. So this was the 90s. The AIDS epidemic was at its height and a lot a lot of fear about it and i didn't know what to do i was a kid and so i volunteered at this hotline the guy that i volunteered with they had professionals Uh, he was a master's level social worker with the college students. And so the guy that I volunteered with his name was Josh. He was a hospice worker full-time. And I thought Josh was creepy like he chose to work with dying people. Why would you <laughs> choose to do that? It made no sense to me as a 20-year-old. And the more I got to know Josh, he really loved his patients. He loved his work. His work fulfilled him and it, it was contagious to me, and I said, "I want to see what doing hospice is about." Like you've intrigued me, and so I asked my professor, "Could I do a practicum at the local hospice?" Music therapists do mini practica throughout their courses prior to their full time six month internship, and so I did a practicum with one of Josh's patients at Big Bend Hospice in Tallahassee, Florida, and it was a gentleman who was dying of HIV/AIDS. He was forty two. He had, um, KS lesions, carparsi sarcoma lesions all over his, his body and face. At the time, we didn't have medications to control that we do now, but back then we didn't. And it was very disfiguring. He was depressed, um, isolated. He didn't let people visit him because of the way he looked, he didn't go visit people. He lived with his mom and dad, a retired Methodist minister. His father wasn't a farmer. Um, and he was dying alone, and Josh knew that he was depressed and the gentleman was a poet and Josh thought, well, maybe music can help lift his spirits and have a connection with him. So I started visiting this patient and we had so many amazing experiences together. We used music um, to prompt his reminiscence. He would ask me for a song and I would sing it or play it. And he would just tell me all these memories of his life. And I felt like I had... I never left the state of Florida before Um, this man traveled the world and I felt like I had traveled the world through his eyes. You know, he just shared all these life memories with me and had a beautiful, wonderful life. Um, And music prompted that reminiscence for him. And he was a poet. So a lot of times he would share poetry with me and then I would put that poetry to music, Um, whatever music he wanted. Sometimes we would write an original song Sometimes it would be to what's called a song parody, an existing song, and we wrote it to that. Um, We had amazing experiences together. He started to decline, um, and I asked him, you know, I'm going to go home for the summer. What more can I do for you? And he said, you know, my dad believes I'm going to go to hell because I'm a Buddhist, and my dad is a Methodist, and um, I want him to be okay when I die. So I said, okay, let me think about how to address that. And remember, I'm only like 21 years old. <laughs> yeah. So I left there going, oh my gosh, what song do you sing for this? You know, <laughs> like, there's no song to help the Buddhist and Christian dilemma of what happens at the That's end of deep. life. It's deep, it's real deep for a kid, you know? <laughs> and so uh, I went to my professor in a panic and she said, you've got this, you know what to do. This man is a poet. Ask him to write a poem about the way he feels. A poem about what it's like for him and his dad to be at odds and poem, uh, a verse about what its similarities between Methodist and Buddhism. And then what it would be like for him to end his time on this earth knowing his father was at peace with his soul. So I did, I invited him to write the poem and the gentleman wrote it very quickly. And um, I said, I'd love to set this to music. And poetry is your way of viewing the world. What if we honored your dad's perspective by putting it to his favorite church hymn? Hmm. And he said, you know, I think that would be great. And so, frankly, I was hoping his favorite church hymn was Amazing Grace because you can sing anything to Amazing Grace and it's real easy it wasn't it was blessed assurance and i don't know if you know blessed assurance but it's a great time and it's blessed assurance jesus is mine oh what a foretaste of glory divine anyway so the poem needed a little work to get into blessed assurance so i said let me work on it and i got a call from josh the social worker saying are you working on a song for for the patient and i said i am and he said you have to finish soon He's not going to be here much longer. Mm. I said, okay, I'll finish now. I went to see him right away. And he was very frail. Um, I weigh 180 pounds. I'm six feet, one inches tall. He was probably six feet and weighed less than 100 pounds. Mm. So he was just wasting away Mm. and very weak. And uh, I asked him, was the song okay? I sang it for him and he said, yes. And, And so I said, let me invite your dad in and I'll sing it for him. And he said, okay. So I invited the father in and he sat on the bed next to his son and I took the only chair in the room and I sang Blessed Assurance as it's written in the Methodist hymnal. Mm-hmm. And then I sang the, the son's words. And when I began to sing the son's words, the, the dad started crying and the tears started right, right here at the mm-hmm. end of his eye and then trickled down his cheek. And then he began sobbing that cry that comes like deep from behind your belly button mm-hmm. And he took his son in his arms and he just cradled him, Mm. just held him and rocked him back and forth. And the son was crying and the dad was crying and I didn't frankly know what to do. And so I just kept singing over and over again, Mm. going back and forth between the original words of Blessed Assurance and the son's words. Mm. When these men seemed to come to the end of their crying, I let the music stop and I didn't say anything. Mm and I didn't know what to say. And um, the man and the son began talking and they didn't talk about their soul in the afterlife, heaven or reincarnation. They didn't talk about Buddhism or Methodism. Mm. They talked about themselves. Mm. They did what I later learned, Dr. Ira Bayok said, we need to do with relationship closure. We need to be able to say, I love you, Mm. forgive you. Please forgive me. Thank you and goodbye. And I watched them do that in front of my eyes, reminisce about their lives, thinking each other. And they were okay. They were at peace. The tension had left the room. The misunderstanding was gone. There was a deep knowing. And he died about a week later. I went to the funeral and... The wife, the mom said, oh, thank you, Russell. You, you brought my boys back together again. <laughs> and I said, no, no, ma'am, I didn't. You know, they did the work and I witnessed it. And I went to my professor and I said, you know, I want to be a hospice music therapist. And she said, you can't fall in love with that work. Those people don't hire music therapists. There's no job there. And I said, I'm going to be a hospice music therapist. I was on fire. And uh, sure enough, after that, I became the nation's first paid full-time hospice music therapist. And now I have the privilege of working at Accent Care, which is the worldwide largest employer of board-certified music therapists. So our hospice patients have access to board-certified music therapists whenever they need them.
0: Well, that would take a little break and we'll be right back.
2: Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com.
0: I'm Saul and we continue our conversation with Russell Hilliard. Uh, Russell, I noticed a pattern uh, and it's almost like a calling, you know, you're with your mom and the music therapist comes in and that changes your direction. And then you meet Josh. And then you meet this amazing patient, a father and son, and almost an affirmation of your calling in that moment as you sing and they embrace. And there's this healing happening in front of you. How, how do you interpret
2: all this? You know, I, I think Saul, you're right. It is it is a calling. Um, there's a saying that we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And I could have never orchestrated or planned my life. Um, it had to be divinely inspired. I don't know any other way to to describe it. Um, I'm just a say yes person. You know, it's it's obvious the direction. How can I be of service? How can I help? Um, you know, people were hungry for this kind of experience in hospice care. I work with so many nurses early on who saw music therapy treat pain management while they were working on the pharmacological interventions. Um, they, they saw their patients be relieved from intense pain with music. They saw their patients calm down. Um, there's a problem in An end of life care with shortness of breath. It's called dyspnea. Mm. And the more short of breath you are, the more anxious you become. The more anxious you become, the more you can't breathe. And it's a terrible cycle. And there are wonderful medications and other things that are used and nurses are brilliant at that, but sometimes it doesn't work as well, or it takes a minute to work. And music therapy breaks that awful cycle. And when nurses saw, wow, my patient is relaxed, they're breathing, um, they're not in pain. um, During the actively dying process, sometimes patients experience something called terminal agitation. Music therapy is beautiful for that. You know, our chaplains realized early on, many of them are musicians and they brought beautiful music in their chaplaincy work to our patients. But some are not musicians. And they said, I need the music therapist because music is such an important part of communing with the patient's higher power, their Mm. God. Mm. Um, Music is an important part of religious ritual and our patients need that. Our social workers saw so much healing with being able to write songs where words fail or giving song dedications for people. So I think the industry was really hungry for another way of healing and being together and bringing people together and music solved that problem. So it looks like
0: uh, almost like the moment chose you. So you go to your professor and and, and they're like, uh, hospice doesn't hire music therapists, but now you've encountered this fire burning within you. And <laughs> so, tell us the steps to
2: becoming hired as a hospice music therapist. So, there was no internship in hospice. I interned at a state psychiatric hospital in Maryland, and I volunteered at the Don Miller House. Don Miller was a realtor in Maryland and Catholic. And when he died, he had a lot of property. He donated all of his property to Catholic charities. And the nuns ran these homes with Don's vision that nobody should die of AIDS alone on the street. And so it was housing for people who were at risk for experiencing homelessness. Um, dying of HIV AIDS. And so I spent every weekend at the Don Miller house working with terminally ill patients, doing music therapy as a volunteer. And I learned so much. The nuns taught me so much. The patients taught me even more. Um, And I was able to really learn what I needed to learn. Mm -hmm. I went to the National Hospice Organization conference in Washington, DC, and I frankly just lobbied um administrators, I thought the people who who could hire me are here, so let me meet them. I met a beautiful woman named Marsha Norman, and uh, she introduced me to her leadership team and she hired me uh, based on the stories and patient case examples I told her about um to to start her music therapy program at Hospice of the Great Lakes in chicago and uh that's where it all started. <laughs> So,
0: what do you remember from that? Uh, are there patients in that first encounter that touched your life deeply?
2: Yes, I think so. You you probably have this experience in your own work. You know, when we're young and new to this profession, it's so very profound, and we see so many patients who touch us. I had this patient. Um, he was a very special man in many ways, and he lived on the south side of Chicago in a skilled nursing facility, very dignified gentleman, put a suit on every morning, but he had Parkinson's Parkinson's disease and his hand shook terribly, and he felt it was so undignified to have such a shaky hand, he couldn't hold a cup of coffee without spilling it, and uh, he loved Billie Holiday Mm -hmm. Um, we sat around and listened to Billie Holiday. He had seen her live in concert and he would tell me about these shows. Uh, So again, living life through the patient's eyes fascinating. And uh, we would play Billie Holiday and there's a, an instrument called the ocean wave drum. It's a hand drum. It's We used a large one and it has little beads in it. And when you slightly move the instrument, it sounds like the waves of an ocean and it's a bit heavy. And so he would hold the ocean wave drum and we'd listen to Billie Holiday and he would just kind of make this relaxing wave sound over the Billie Holiday recordings. And he would do that for about 20 minutes. And afterwards his hands didn't shake at all not for about half an hour you know and it calmed him and the maybe the weight of the drum did something with his hands i don't know the medical mechanics of it, but it worked to calm his hands. So we realized this was working for him and he liked to visit with ladies from the church. And so he would schedule um, them to come after I came so he could hold a cup of coffee and visit with the ladies from the church without having his hand shake.
0: Wow. You
2: know, so little things make a big difference. Big things. I had a woman who was actively dying in her home in Chicago and uh, loved gospel music. And um, her son was a construction worker. I'd never met him before. Uh, She had a caregiver at home. And when she was imminently dying, I arrived before the nurse and this woman loved gospel music. We sang every gospel song known to humankind. And her son was there when I got there and big, tough guy, you know, not, not talking, kind of grunting hello and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But his mom is dying. And I said, you know, I've been singing to your mom for several months. I know all of her favorite church songs. Can I sing them? And he said, yes, yes, of course. So I started singing and uh, he had this deep voice and uh, he started humming along. And then he started singing And so I dropped my voice and just played the guitar and let him sing to his mom. Her last breath was while he was singing to her, Precious Lord. Mm. It was the last moment. And I thought, how beautiful for this lady that her son, the last thing she heard is one of her favorite hymns with her son singing to her.
0: Mm.
2: I knew that she had taken her last breath. I didn't know if he knew because he was still singing the song. And mm-hmm. he finished the song and I stopped playing the guitar and we sat there quietly and I realized he knew his mom had gone mm-hmm. and we he just held that space. And he thanked me, you know, he said, I, I will forever miss her. Mm-hmm. But what a beautiful way to go, you know.
0: <laughs> Stories like that just touches the heart uh deeply. It looks like you found a way, uh to carry all these stories within you and also continue to be an advocate for music therapy and also continue to be a healer it is a it takes a lot of self awareness to be able to live that kind of life
2: maybe so but i have a feeling it just found me you know yeah, yeah. i don't know if you ever had this experience with somebody and you think they're suffering so much and the, the hand of God, you know, I call it God. I think maybe the God of my understanding is love. Mm. You know, and that, that that hand of God just wraps itself around people and guides them in ways that they didn't know they needed. And I think that's what happened to me. I was a kid when I started this. I was a mm. selfish 20-year-old guy trying to make my way in this world and didn't know anything. And um, I just was guided by this beautiful hand and it wrapped itself around me. And frankly, I didn't have a choice. It just was. So I don't know if I found it, but I think it found me. I believe you. I believe
0: you because there are many 20-year-old kids, you know, who look at life differently, but also probably your life experiences. You know, sometimes our life experiences shape us. Either we have people who modeled being a caregiver to us, But for you, it's like being a caregiver and helping people find meaning and healing is a way of life. It looks like that's how it is for you. And um, and that's powerful. So with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back.
1: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1 800 950 NAMI. That's 1 800 950 6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to infonami.org.
0: I'm Sol Bema, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplains' Show. We continue our conversation with Russell. Um, and then um, you, you were part of studying Camp Kangaroo. Can you, can you explain to our listeners what that is?
2: Yes, it's a children's and adolescents bereavement camp. Um, My first experience with grieving children was at Hospice of Palm Beach County in the 90s. I worked there and created their children's bereavement program. We did school-based children's grief groups and then also our first camp. When I joined Seasons Hospice, now Accent Care Hospice, uh, we didn't have a camp. So I worked with our team and we created Camp Kangaroo, our children's and adolescent bereavement camp. It's very music therapy based, Sol, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, all of our music therapists play an important role in it, but it's also all the creative arts therapies. So we've had art therapists work there. We use all the modalities of the creative arts therapies. Um, I'm also a licensed clinical social worker, and we've applied a psychotherapy model of of counseling called brief therapy to the camp. And we're really walking grieving children through the four tasks of mourning that William Warden talks about. And by structuring all of our sessions around those four tasks of morning, we're really able to see a lot of therapeutic gain in a short period of time at camp. We offer camps throughout the nation and multiple sites. We're in 41 programs in 30 states or so. Um, and it's free of charge um, certainly we provide it to the families of our hospice patients but also to the greater community so we have children who have' been, been impacted by non-hospice deaths such as motor vehicle accidents homicide suicide drug overdoses and the like and it's a great healing space for for all children and adolescents you know uh, normally
0: uh, when people go into this kind of uh, calling like bereavement, uh, they're born from our own experiences. What was your first encounter with grief or death and dying?
2: I don't know life, Saul, without that. Um, so my father died of an accident when I was two years old. I have no memory of that. I have no memory of him um, or of the accident. And um, But it shaped my whole life because I grew up in a grieving home. My brother was 10 when my father died, so he, his life was dramatically affected. He he, he remembered a dad really well. He knew about the accident. That was a traumatic event that shaped his life. My mother was a grieving widow and mom. Um, there wasn't a Christmas that wasn't bittersweet. Every Christmas was joyful and happy. Um, she did a great job of making that for us. But I remember also hearing her cry alone in her room at night. Yeah. And so I think when you grow up in a grieving home, um, even though it wasn't my grief, I, I didn't know him, you know, I was impacted greatly by that and what that was like. I had an uncle who was a father figure, wonderful man. He died when uh, I grew up with twins. His daughters or twins, were the same age, one month apart. And he died when we were freshmen in high school of mm-hmm. Lou Gehrig's disease or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis at home. At you a know, home death. Um, and so I saw death early on. And then, of course, my mother had the aneurysm when I was 19 and then ultimately died when I was 26. Uh, so a lot of death, grief, and loss, it just seemed unnatural. Uh, I, I'm comfortable with it. I understand that death is a natural part of life. Um, I, I don't remember ever dying before, but I imagine it's got to be easier than grieving Grieving is
0: so heartbreaking. Right. Yes. You know? So uh, in most children, when they're grieving, I lost my parents when I was 12 mm-hmm. and uh, it's hard to really put grief into words. Uh, how does music, you know, help grieving children process
2: their feelings? Um, I think the the best way I can tell you that is give you an example. I had a, a kid, he was about 12, maybe 13, um, his mom died and I was playing the guitar in a grief session and I was teaching the, the kids how to write a song. How do we write a song about our grief? So I taught them some basic chords on the guitar and everybody had their own guitar and they were trying to come up with their own song. And this guy was very quiet not a sharer, didn't put things into words. Sometimes he'd write some things, but mostly pretty quiet, but also attentive. You know, you could tell he was absorbing things, although he wasn't sharing. When he picked up that guitar, he started rocking back and forth. He closed his eyes and he was playing the chords, just a one-five chord progression back and forth. And he started singing and talking together just words that made up, started with the memory of his mom. And as he was doing this, it, it became this emotional catharsis for him. You know, his eyes were were closed shut tight and the tears were just streaming down. And he was so unaware of what was going on in the outside world that he had snot dripping down the guitar, you know. Um, he was just in that moment and letting it out. Um, music unlocks this, I don't know if it's a vault inside of us or this passage for us, Um, but think about love on the other side of grief. You know, if you've ever been in love, when you say, baby, I love you, it doesn't quite mean the same as when you hear that song, I am so in love with you. And you look at each other from across the room and you're like, oh yeah, right? <laughs> so if it can do that for a love, imagine what it can do for sorrow, mm. for grief, for pain. Um, music expresses things where words just fall short. They they fall short on us. Yeah. It's an alembic system. It's deep within our being.
0: Can you educate our listeners about the four tasks of mourning uh, in relation to how you do it with the kids and the music.
2: Yeah, so Warden says that if we walk through these tasks of morning, we will be able to find peace with our grief. And the first task is to experience the pain of the loss. Then this is where many of us struggle, especially adults, kids also, but especially adults. We don't want to experience the pain. We want to avoid it. You know, it's uncomfortable. So music, like for this young man, it allowed him to express the pain. to experience it. He went there with that pain. We do drum circles for anger. Um, Anger is a normal part of the grieving process. But when children are told it's bad to be angry, then they suppress it. It's not bad to be angry. It's normal to be angry when somebody dies. It's just not going to help you if you hit hit a kid at school because you're angry. So we've got to teach them ways to express their anger that's safe for them. Drumming circle is a great way to do that. Listening to music is a great way to do that. Listening to music and dancing is a great way to do that. Playing basketball is a great way to do that. So all these emotions, sorrow, anger, confusion, guilt, shame, betrayal, disappointment, all of these emotions are part of the grieving process. And music allows us to express emotions safely. Yeah. And the second task of mourning is to accept the reality of the loss And what Warden is talking about here is not just the fact that my loved one died and can't come back, although for children, that's a big piece, because depending on where they are developmentally, they may not understand. Very young children will say, well, why can't dad just come back home? You know, when is he coming home? And we've told the child, dad has died many times, but it's confusing. Mm. Older children don't live in, in that, that phase anymore, but they live in fantasy, where they would like that again. Mm. The o- older children from there, the teenagers, don't always understand the many relationships this person had with them, the many roles they played. So it was my parent who died, but it was also my mentor, mm. my friend, my guide. My sense of stability at home, financial security. Mm. So, to accept the role, understand the roles are part of to accept the reality of the loss. The third task is to adjust to the environment where the deceased is missing. Mm. In other words, how do I go on with my life? This doesn't make any sense. Mm. So, we spend a lot of time with grieving children on what happens around that first Thanksgiving or Christmas or Hanukkah. Uh, where there are traditions in the family. And if it was my grandpa who died, who's going to do the things that he always did? Mm. What new customs, traditions will we play in our family? Um, it may be that my parent, my mother died and now we have to go live with my grandparents. So I'm adjusting to a whole new world, maybe a whole new school. Um, music can help us by way of songwriting, lyric analysis discussions, trying to make sense of all of that. And then the fourth task of mourning is to move forward with life and to find a new way of meaning in life. And that sense of moving forward, uh, we do several different things. With the very young kids, we talk about all the different grief emotions. We write a song about them. And then we run through pieces of paper, big butcher paper that we hold up. And they kind of run through it like a marathon banner. (laughs) And they tear through each one of the emotions uh, as they move forward. And so the idea is that my loved one would want me to be happy. Mm -hmm. They would want me to live a good life. And the best way I can honor them is to do that.
0: That's a powerful ritual right there. Mm-hmm. So what are your final thoughts?
2: You know, I think all of us can use music for healing. I think we do naturally. It's intuitive for us. In end-of-life care, I'm, I'm delighted that so many hospices have embraced the services of professional board-certified music therapists. Uh, they should. There's a role for volunteer musicians. We certainly have them in our program as well. Um, And there's a difference between what a volunteer musician does and what a board certified music therapist does. And it has to do with the therapeutic value, you know, for a patient who loves country Western music and is lonely, having a volunteer musician visit them and play country Western music will, will be great. But for a patient who's struggling with depression or finding purpose at this stage of life or Um, living with a lot of regrets or having spiritual distress or pain or uh, respiratory distress. They need a therapist. And it's good to have a board-certified music therapist on the team rounding out the interdisciplinary team of what hospices do all the time.
0: Thank you very much, Russell. Thank you, Saul. That was Russell Hilliard. Thank you for listening.
1: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.